In a world, there was one podcast that made all others look like silly little part-time, half-baked ideas that should have been thrown in the trash can after being written down. That's a super long-winded way of saying that Drunk Theory Podcast is the best-kept secret out there right now. They're a bunch of idiots talking about conspiracy theories, and when these four come together, they have the capability to solve just about any question coming their way. But keep in mind, they're idiots, so sometimes they won't have the answer. But we guarantee you'll end up laughing so hard you cry or urinate in your pants. I don't make the rules here. So let Matthew, Kara, Kelly, and Ryan give you everything you never know you needed and more. Only on Drunk Theory Podcast. Available on all major streaming platforms. More conspiracies coming soon. Podcast, a weekly podcast that chats shoe crime, conspiracy theories, paranormal stories, folklore, a little bit of this, and a little bit of that to provide you a distraction from everyday life. I'm one of your hosts, Alex. And Christy. And this week we are back talking true crime. This is going to be a tough one, so just a heads up. Sorry for making you depressed, but we're here to also educate the fine folk on some things that maybe you didn't know about. So before we dive into this tragic true crime case, Christy, what is your need for a distraction this week? Let me guess. Hold on. Wait. <laughs> is it work? It's like a sleep. Ah. Due, due to work. <laughs> I was just telling Alex I was on nights this past weekend, so I've like I've just woken up off my night shift and now recording midday. But uh, literally yesterday, I was like, I'm pretty sure I fell asleep at the wheel a couple times because I did not prepare myself enough for my nights and working doubles. I need to prioritize myself a little bit better before I kiss somebody. <laughs> yeah, self-care highly needed. We might need to get you on the caffeine train as well because you are not a yeah, caffeine I'm, drinker. I'm anti-tea and coffee. <laughs> yes, but we'll, we'll find something for you because, yeah, definitely scary to nod off on the wheel. Definitely a safety risk. And I'm going to hop on that kind of work train because work's also been just super, 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 super shitty. I think Mercury in retrograde is finally done, but there was also a full moon last week, so that's simultaneously working. At the same time, not great for those, uh, not great for those, those that I work for. No, no, it's weird. It's like, let's light a dumpster on fire and see what happens. Oh, a dumpster fire? Wow. Yeah, it was just so bad. So looking forward to having some fierce conversations about some of the other things that have been going on. And obviously there might be more news before this episode comes out or what have you, because we are recording it a week from its release. But as some of you may know, there have been more mass uncoverings of victims who unfortunately were forced. They did not willingly attend, but they were forced to uh, residential schools here in Canada. I had a feeling you were going to cover this topic when you said it was sad. Yeah. So given the recent uncovering of the mass child burials under the residential schools in our unfortunate home country of Canada, I did some reflecting and realized that we haven't really covered any Native or Indigenous cases as of yet. It's not because we haven't wanted to. I've always wanted to in the back of my mind, at least, and I'm sure you have as well. It's just one of those things that we want to do it justice because 
we're talking about people who like, we're talking about a group who we don't identify with. And so we want to be the most respectful as possible. Right. Mm-hmm. With that being said, uh, this week I'm going to discuss the murder of Kiera Lee Kosho. It's not a Canadian case, but it is one involving a young Native girl from Iowa. Uh, the reason why I'm not covering a Canadian case just yet is because I'm trying to find one that has enough information so that we can make it a, like a main feed episode, as well as I just... I want to make sure, once again, want to do it justice. There was a lot of information on this case. And also, once I started reading into this case, I was like, holy crap. I want our listeners to know about this case because it is unfortunately tragic. But it's one of those cases that I think the more we talk about it, the more we can get educated. Hey, maybe maybe we can kind of take a look at it because, unfortunately, it is an unsolved case. So, mm-hmm. and But they say education is power. Exactly. Education is power. I'm just going to give a big old trigger warning for this entire episode because obviously we are going to be talking about prejudice. Uh, we're going to be talking about death of a child. It's 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 going to be a tough one, but once again, one that we need to talk about. So you ready, Christy? Hit me with all the sadness. All right. So Kiera was born August 15th, 1975 in Wisconsin to parents Wayne and Deborah Butler. Wayne and Deborah, according to the Find a Grave website, were part of the La Coterie O'Reilly's Band, which is one of six bands of Ojibwe people located in Wisconsin. I think Deborah's last name was Butler and Wayne's last name was Kosho. I could be wrong, but regardless... That's the T. So Wayne and Deborah reportedly would split up at some point after the birth of Kiera, in which it's been documented that Wayne had custody of Kiera and her older sister, Bernadette. Some reports, however, claim that Wayne gained custody of the girls due to Deborah struggling with addictions. However, others claim that Wayne and his new wife, Karen, did not have legal custody and took the girls with them during a visit. So one of those... It's my weekend to take the kids, but I'm going to take them indefinitely. Yeah, I was going to kidnap them. Yeah, which is, you know, illegal. Illegal. Frowned upon. Don't do that. Regardless, Kira moved with her father, stepmother, and Bernadette to Red Oak in Iowa. The family reportedly lived nearby a motel that Karen managed, a.k.a. the Hilltop Motel. Our unfortunate story starts off on July 12, 1979 at the motel. A construction company working nearby called the fire department at 2.15 p.m. to report a fire at the motel, a.k.a. the Hilltop Motel. Two construction workers, Terry Sellers and Phil Harris, reportedly heard people screaming from the motel. They ran to the scene of the fire, however, were unable to enter due to the reported intense heat and dense smoke, according to the Iowa Cold Cases website. When firefighters arrived at the scene, they devastatingly found the body of then three-year-old Kiera in the laundry room, lying in the middle of the room. She unfortunately did not survive the fire. Kiera had reportedly suffered from third-degree burns, which covered 57% of her body. According to the Iowa Cold Cases website, Kiera's stepmother Karen reported to police that she had taken Kiera with her to the motel at around 1.30 p.m. to 1.45 p.m. on that July 12th day. So Karen was questioned after, I guess, firefighters had kind of show up, 
put the fire out this that and the era but karen was in fact one of the first people questioned as far as my understanding like cse mm-hmm. and karen's got a lot to say so karen explained that she had seen kiera playing with an empty pop bottle by herself on the laundry room step at this point karen stated that the door to the laundry room was open karen at the time was removing sheets from room six and eight just doing her regular cleaning thing, I'm guessing. Karen then reported that she had returned back home nearby to get another key for another room and claimed that apparently this trip only took five minutes, but still it just, I mean, I'm not here to bash people's parenting, but you take the three-year-old with you then, in my mind. Yeah, you don't leave them. Yeah, especially playing outside of a motel. It just... To me, it just already breeds bad news. Karen further informed police when she came back to the motel, the laundry room door was closed. Karen allegedly tried to open the door, however, was faced with smoke and flames. She then claims that she had called 911. However, the records of the Iowa State Fire Marshal Division indicated that it was the previously mentioned construction worker who made the call, the reported only call regarding the fire at the motel. So already... Mm-mm, Karen, not looking That's good. That's sketchy. Why would you say you called your child and then he didn't? Exactly. Unless you're trying to prove something or hide something or, mm. yeah, prove something, I guess. I don't know. It's suspicious. It's suspicious. So days later on July 16th, Karen's story seemingly changed in a Red Oak newspaper article. In this new edition of the story, Karen reported that she had Kira with her and that the two of them were in the laundry room doing laundry, which this is different in the sense that previously neither of them were in the laundry room at the same time. The only seemingly consistent side of this new story is that Karen had left Kiera alone for about five minutes. We still have got that five minutes, five minute window that Karen keeps claiming that occurred. I read on the Iowa Cold Cases website that apparently there was a witness who watched Karen take Kiera into the laundry room and then proceeded to walk at least seven rooms away from where the laundry room was, aka where the fire had started. So someone watched Karen take Kira into the laundry room and then left, which, interesting. Yes. Definitely goes against everything Karen is saying. she said, yeah. Karen's different stories and the eyewitness statement wasn't the only alarming aspect to this entire situation. Prior to this incident, local hospital staff had allegedly encountered Kira on multiple visits due to numerous suspected child abuse situations which, according to the Iowa Cold Cases website, social services allegedly thought was at the hands of Karen. For example, Kira had spent a week at the hospital after she had reportedly had caustic burns to both of her eyes, reportedly caused by drainal crystals and water. Now, before we all start jumping into conclusions, thinking, well, kids can easily get into things, the drainal canister had a childproof lid on it. And let's just let let's 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 air it all of our grievances here. I can barely open things that are childproof, and I'm 27. That's yeah, pretty difficult. Yeah, let alone three year old. And let alone a three year old. Why is it in her eyes? And she was a hustle for a week. Exactly. So already there's just shit not adding up to this equation. There's things prior to, and as we get into it, it's going to be a little bit more damning for Karen. 
This incident, unfortunately, the Drano incident, as I'm going to refer it to as, left Kiera blind in both eyes. And even though she would be known to wear prescribed glasses, she still reportedly had difficulty seeing things. That's so sad. I know. Other reports of child abuse include Karen locking Kira and Bernadette outside of the house during the day, forbidding them to come inside to even use the restroom. There was one account of this happening the day before the fire. On July 11th, 1979, Karen allegedly had locked the girls outside while Wayne was gone at work. I have not read any, just to clear this out while I've mentioned Wayne again, Mm-hmm. I, I haven't been able to find any documents that Wayne was abusive towards the girls at all. I have also haven't read anything that he wasn't. So I don't really know if any, like if anyone's kind of questioning that while listening to this, I don't know, unfortunately, but based on what I have read, I don't know if he was aware of the fact that Karen was locking Bernadette and Kira outside while he was at yeah, work. He's gone to work and I don't know why she's locked him outside. Exactly. Kira reportedly told Bernadette that day that she had to use the bathroom really badly. So Bernadette reportedly started banging on the door, telling their stepmother that Kira needed to come in and use the bathroom. Karen didn't open up the door in time, a.k.a. she probably made them wait because, let's be real, Karen sounds like a grade-A asshole. Uh, and Kira, yeah, absolute fucking trash. And Kira had, unfortunately, soiled herself, which she's three years old. She's locked outside of her home. What the fuck else do you expect is going to happen, Karen? Yeah, she's just a bitch. She's, yeah. We don't like Karen. We're not a big fan of Karens, but definitely don't like this Karen. Put it that way. Agreed. Not wanting Wayne to come home from work and see the scene that Karen had basically created, she rushed the two girls in to the home and drew them a bath, trying to clean them up, get them ready for when Wayne comes home, what have you. Bernadette reportedly went into the tub first as Karen helped Kira get undressed. I'm going to use a direct quote from the Iowa Cold Cases website, and I'm going to give another huge trigger warning for child abuse. If you don't want to hear it, maybe skip ahead at least a minute or two. All right, here we go. Direct quote. Bernadette said her stepmother began to violently shake her three-year-old sister, a fact that is consistent with the June 2007 report sent to the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation. Karen continued to repeatedly shake the child, and by the time she finally put Kira into the bathtub, the child's body had gone limp and showed no signs of having any motor skills at all. She could not sit up, move, or even respond. When Karen let go of the child's body and left the bathroom, Kira's unresponsive body slid down into the bathtub. Okay, that's ridiculous. The kid is unresponsive. So I would think you want to do something, but A, but first before you're shaking it, and then you'd let it possibly drown. Well, she literally, okay, here's, here's, here's the fucking takeaway from this. So Karen locked the girls outside of the house, wouldn't let them come in to use the bathroom even. Kira had an accident because she's three years old and she knew she needed to go in the bathroom, which she didn't have access to. So already strike one for Karen. But instead of taking responsibility and acknowledging that, hey, I caused this to happen, Karen then seemingly, allegedly starts physically shaking Kiera. I'm assuming because she had soiled herself and because she, you know, whatever reason. And it's like, Karen, you literally caused all of this. You caused all of this. You caused this, yeah. And now Kiera is unresponsive. It just, to me, it's, it's, it's one of those things where 
people who cannot claim responsibility over the shit they cause are the lowest of the low, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. Complete Hot trash. Tip. Complete, absolute trash. So Karen allegedly got Kira out of the tub, dressed her in her PJs, and told everyone that Kira was sick. You know, she's sick. That's why she's not talking. That's why she can't play. That's why this, that, and the other. Meanwhile, Kira is basically limp at this point. We'll get more into, like, the specifics of it, but she's limp. Like, she's not responsive. Yeah, you don't have no idea what condition she is. Like, oh, let's just put her to bed. What? Exactly. So, exactly. So, Bernadette and her stepsister, Kelly, watch Karen carry Kira into the laundry room of the motel the day of the fire, aka being the next day, July 12th, from when the shaking incident in the bathroom happened on July 11th, only to see... Karen leave the laundry room without Kira and go down a few doors before the fire imploded. So we have an unnamed eyewitness testimony. We also have both Kelly, which is Karen's daughter, and Bernadette, which is Kiera's sister, seeing her leave Kiera in the laundry room. I want that to stick in everyone's head. We have eyewitness testimony from three different people. Yes, two of them might have been kids, what have you. But still... Still, we have three fucking people who saw Karen leave Kira in the laundry room. Keep that in your head. Note taken. Yes. I'm going to take another direct quote from Bernadette, which, once again, I got from the Iowa Cold Cases website. Would highly recommend this website, especially for this case. They had literally everything. Um, But here's the quote. They did not find my sister on time. She was burnt beyond recognition. I have told the story many times, and for whatever reason, it has been ignored and blown off. I was never questioned by authorities until my aunt tried to reopen the case, and then only to find Iowa will not do anything because they messed up. Whether it is because we were just two Indian girls in a predominantly white population and our life was less important, I don't know, but we were cast off, and since I went away to my mother, nothing further was asked. I'm sorry, why didn't they ask Bernadette? Because the first thing is you interview everybody, whether they're kids or not. You interview every person, every person on scene. What the fuck, Iowa? Even if you need to get a specialist to interview children, you do that. I don't understand. I get that. This was a couple, like, um, this took place, when was it, in the 70s? But I, I don't give a shit. You have to fucking ask everyone. But this is, this is another reminder that there's prejudice, right? Because they're not white. They're in a white populated area. And because they are not white people, they don't get the same time of day. No, because they're not having any accountability for everyone that's involved in this case so far. Exactly. So, getting angry already, but we're going to move to the fire investigation and the autopsy. Just a heads up, you're going to get more angry. So, according to the investigation report done by detectives with the Iowa State Fire Marshal Division and Arsons and Explosive Bureau, the fire's point of origin could not be determined. In the report, it details that the laundry room faced extensive damage, but that there was no specific area found with deep charring or low burning. Whilst doing the investigation, a one-gallon open container of DuPont brand paint thinner was reportedly observed sitting upright beside Kiera's body, with only one to two inches of paint thinner left. Also nearby Kiera's body was a pile of linens that reportedly, allegedly, had a similar odor similar to the paint thinner. 
The Iowa State Fire Marshal Division and Arson and Explosives Bureau came to the following conclusion. Kira, according to this report, must have reached up and pulled a gallon of paint thinner from one of the shelves in the laundry room. Once she got said paint thinner, she must have pried off the childproof metal lid, which then must have spilled all over herself. The fire must have then been caused by an interaction with a spark from the nearby water heater. That's what they, that's, that's. Okay, that's a little crap. Yeah. Yeah. Once again, being someone who cannot open childproof things on a regular basis, how the fuck is a three-year-old, might I add, a three-year-old with vision impairment issues. How is she a knowing where to look on said shelf that she probably can't reach? Going to put that out there. Then gets it down, prides it open with her little wee hands, and then pours it on herself. I'm exactly. sure there was, if, if it was soaked in rags and then on herself or anywhere, that's that's going to be the point of origin. There's going to be charring where that was yeah. laid and lit on fire. And not only that, where is the child neglect charges on Karen? Because mm-hmm. regardless, Karen, who was her legal guardian at that time, supposed to fucking watch her should have done something. She shouldn't have left her. I don't even care if it's five minutes. Like she done better. She should have done better. Yeah, exactly. <sighs> so Rage. Oh, the fire was referred to as a conflagration, meaning it was large and a damaging blaze that can cover a lot of space instantly. So it was basically in my mind, an explosion. Like it just, it just happened and it, it covered a lot of that laundry room very, very quick. It should be noted, and once again, to reference the Iowa Cold Cases website, that conflagration fires are typically deliberately set, which now I'm gonna use a direct quote from the investigation report. After concluding the interview and taking additional photographs of the scene, Agent Roy Marshall of the Iowa State Fire Marshal Division went to the funeral home and viewed the corpse a.k.a. Kira. Dr. Rodman Smith, the county medical examiner, was present and related incidents of alleged child abuse that had been inflicted upon Kira and her sister, presumably by the stepmother. Dr. Smith also felt that the Drano incident was somewhat suspicious. Somewhat suspicious, really? He said the case had been turned over to social services and a caseworker had been assigned. That's the end of the quote. Yeah. Okay. What's the follow-up with the social worker? And that's the thing. Look, being someone in the social services sector, I know how long... The wait- is. Like, I get yeah, that is. I get that. I, to- I can empathize with that a thousand percent. But to play devil's advocate, I wonder if there was, you know, maybe some... Oh, I'll get to that file eventually... Because Kiera was native. Do you know what I mean? Like, I wonder. Mm. I, I There could just, have been some prejudice going on. I mean, it's the late 70s. I I don't know. I, I just. There's a lot of questions. You're like, a lot hmm. of questions. Exactly. Dr. PC Raymond performed the autopsy of Kiera in which both the autopsy report and the certificate of death allegedly proved that it would have been physically impossible of three-year-old Kira to start the fire. This is due to the fact that it was observed that Kira had suffered from acute spinal cord injury and was in neurogenic shock from the previous violent shakings. 
aka the bathroom incident prior to the fire. Neurogenic shock is apparently severe autonomic dysfunction and an interpretation of sympathetic nervous system control in acute spinal cord injury above the sixth thoracic vertebrae. So needless to say... Pardon? Thoracic. Thank you. Needless to say, though, she's not moving. She's no, not able to move. No, that's physically impossible. Exactly. And the fact that it's like lit up, okay, it was deliberate arson, that it was has an accelerant of sorts, and exactly. she didn't do it, so who did? Exactly. Uh, so after Karen had allegedly shook Kira on that Wednesday, Kira would have essentially been left with some form of paraplegia or quadriplegia based off of the finding of the neurogenic shock, which means that Kira wouldn't have been playing by herself in front of the laundry room or inside the laundry room, nor would she have been able to crawl up to a shelf and grab paint center and bring it down and spill it on herself to start the fire. So what's good, Karen? Because I've got some fucking questions for you. What the actual fuck? Yeah, that's like, there's just so much that's like, okay, this is all complete bullshit. Yeah, exactly. So to those listening that think, okay, so we have this, you know, uh, we have the autopsy report and the death certificate saying, acknowledging what happened in the injuries that sh- that Kira suffered from the day before and how essentially if we do the some quick, easy fucking math, that would mean she wouldn't have been responsible in her own death. Why are we talking about this case then? Right? It, it seems clear cut. Mm-hmm. It's not. Because, you know, good old prejudice has to peer its head in. So both the autopsy and certificate of death cite the neurogenic shock and full body burns as immediate factors in Kira's death. However, when it comes to the manner of death, both side with it being accidental. Which, how? 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 Paint me Please explain to me how that's accidental. Please. Please. Riddle riddle me a painting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Riddle. Riddle. Tell me what's going on here, because I just don't understand how that can be accidental. No, there's like, I don't know what's going on, but there's some major oversights going on. A thousand percent. And we covering other cases of non-white folk know and hearing other cases of non-white folk know that a lot of oversight happens when you have racist people in these positions of power or in these positions of not wanting to do more than what their job description says and actually investigate a case properly because of said prejudice. Mm-hmm. So now I'm going to focus on the aftermath for the family and some statistics that I found uh, that I'm going to, that I kind of threw into this case. So here's where things kind of go from devastating to gut-wrenching. Uh, first, according to reports, Deborah, Kira and Bernadette's biological mother allegedly did not learn about Kira's death until August 1979, a.k.a. a month after Kira died, because what? I don't know if Wayne and Karen told her. I don't I honestly don't know, but that's what I read. And I was like, how who why who the fuck didn't tell her? And why? Yeah, like no excuse for a month. Okay. No. A month and their child is dead. Exactly. Kira was buried in the Babyland section of the Evergreen Cemetery in Red Oak on July 14th, 1979. So she had, like, she passed away on the 12th. Two days later, she's buried. Which to me, look, I, I don't and know. Why would you invite her mother? Yeah. It, if, 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 yeah. Exactly. 
Regardless, Kira also had a total of four documented sisters that she left behind, Bernadette, which we've already met, as well as sisters Heather and Kedrian, along with stepsister Kelly. She also left many other family members who, I can imagine, were extremely concerned and confused as to what actually happened. Was Kira murdered? Was the fire a cover-up? Or was it actually a simple accident? As mentioned earlier, the case seemed to be closed and deemed not a homicide by officials, which some, including Bernadette, thought it was because Kira was native. It's not new news that there have been many prejudices against non-white folks for God knows how long, for many, 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 way too many moons. And a lot of times we see these injustices in the very justice system that we're expected to trust. Here are some statistics from the Native Women's Wilderness website that may shine more of a light as to this notion. So, for example... Indigenous women and girls have a 10 times higher rate of being murdered than other ethnicities. And murder is the third leading cause of death for Indigenous women. Third. The third leading cause of death is murder. That's disgusting. Like, what the... Yeah. It's... It's... It's it's heavy, but it's, it's something that we as white folk have the privilege to say, well, you know... Murder might be on our cause of death list, but it's probably pretty low. Whereas it is literally the third cause of death for Indigenous and Native women. Like it just boggles my mind that that's even part like that's even part of the list, so to speak. So, uh, using another resource based out of Canada, here's a direct quote from the Homeless Hub website regarding domestic and family violence. A 1989 study by the Ontario Native Women's Association reported that 8 out of 10 Native women had reportedly been abused. While the study was focused on Northern Ontario, it is statistically representative of other communities across the country. There is growing documentation that Native female adults, adolescents, and children are experiencing abuse, battering, and or sexual assault at a staggering degree. Now, this study was done many, also many moons ago, so I'm interested to hear more about new studies, and I hope that there are new studies happening, but this is just mm-hmm. another... It'd be nice to get updated stats and yeah. know the, like the real numbers now. Especially now, right? And trends, yeah, with all stuff coming out, you're like, is this still going on? Like, we know what's still going on, but I was like, oh. and what degree is this still happening? Because, unfortunately, we're in a society where unless you can prove numbers, nothing will change. And also, if you are not white, your numbers don't really matter to the white politicians and, you know, government workers, this, that, and the other, because that's just how it is, apparently, which is absolute fucking horseshit. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't able to find Iowa-specific statistics. However, I want listeners to perhaps use the other statistics that I've just mentioned and consider them as we continue on with Kiera's story. And also acknowledge that way more investigation and research needs to be done everywhere for our Indigenous and Native folks. In terms of what happened afterwards for Karen specifically, not much. Uh, not much has happened. She was questioned. She apparently gave an interview after the fact, uh, but there was no arrest. There was no warrant. There was no further investigation. There was absolutely diddly fucking squat. According to the Iowa Cold Cases website, Karen and Wayne would go on to run county critters in Iowa, which housed numerous different animals from wolves to lizards and snakes. Kind of like a... Oh, what was that thing called? The big 
Hoot Nanny, right? Tiger King, like a Tiger King esque thing, but I don't think they had tigers. Like a Joe. Other animals. Yeah, just like a Joe Exotic esque situation, minus the tigers and probably bears. Who knows? But it's also been documented that the couple moved around a lot afterwards in Iowa, so just bumped around all through the state. And as far as I know, they're still alive to this day, perhaps being in their 70s or 80s at this point. Kira's case was reopened, although briefly, in 2007 by Wayne's sister, Sandra, and Bernadette. Unfortunately, no real traction was made, and in my opinion, I don't think this is at fault of the family by any means, shape, or form. It seemed as though the family members had asked officials to take another look at the case and offered to be interviewed from, you know, what they remembered from that day. And do you think they fuck, like, do you think officials actually follow through with it? Fuck no. Absolutely not. Why? Because once again, we're not dealing with white people and the attention and the focus and the, you know, the work that needs to be done won't be done. So, unfortunately, the case just kind of went cold again. It just kind of, they just reverted back to the fact that, oh, well, the autopsy and the certificate of death ruled it being an accident. Meanwhile, we have all this information that would suggest otherwise. It's called doing your job, and they're not doing it properly. Exactly, a thousand percent. So, Sandra, unfortunately, passed away in July of 2013 of cancer, and it appears as though Bernadette has tried to continue to get the word out of her sister's death to this day. There is a Facebook page, I believe, monitored by Bernadette, where she shares no ill will against Karen or her father. However, ultimately wants justice brought for her little sister. Now, to try and summarize this case, this is this is one of probably the, the hardest cases we've covered so far. Um, I mean, that we've obviously covered a couple of other ones that have been like have been challenging to talk about, but I, once again, with talking about it brings education. So, as mentioned, the tragic case of three-year-old Kara has seemingly gone cold. We may have our own perspectives as to what happened, but I think there needs to be further examination of this case, perhaps with new non-prejudiced eyes. From the Iowa Cold Cases website, they list a couple of different places you can contact if you or anyone you know has any information regarding the death of Kira, which people still strongly to this day believe it is an unsolved murder. Uh, I'll include them in my show notes. And this information could be maybe people that, you know, knew the family or knew Kira growing up or, you know, saw were at the motel that day. You know, maybe down the road they heard something, right? Like any, any information is obviously beneficial. As I mentioned in the beginning or in the intro, I may wonder why I didn't cover a Canadian case. It's mostly just because I stumbled upon this case, Kira's case, and really, I hadn't heard of it about it before. I felt very strongly towards it in the sense of I want to talk about it. I want other people to hear about it because, I, once again, if you hear about it, you become educated about it, right? And... You know, even though it's not Canadian-based, eventually we will get to some Canadian cases. It's just mm-hmm. a matter of which ones we discuss. So, and if you have any recommendations, let us know. Like, email us, DM us. You know, if there's anything specific you think we should cover, um, always open to that. Always. So, don't be a stranger. Hit us up. Um, we all have a part to play when it comes to equality and safety for all, whether it's bringing up and discussing cold cases or just learning and listening. 
Maybe it's, you know, making a statement. Maybe it's honoring someone's memory. Whatever it is, we just need to keep talking. Because I think the moment we stop talking, we're just kind of sitting in silence and we're not making any traction. No, and you become oblivious to things and you're like, the more you talk, the more people will learn about different things and hear about things and, again, get educated. And support people, right? Like, like mm-hmm. I think we've said this before, and it's also no new news, but Chris and I are both white folk. We don't have the experiences of prejudice as, you know, indigenous, native, black, Asian. You know, we don't, we, we, we've, we've been privileged enough not to experience that, but that doesn't mean that we can't be empathetic or show empathy or even try and support, support. Yeah. yeah, and be more educated, right? I know this episode comes out after Canada Day, but I'm going to try and spend Canada Day educating myself a little bit better about Indigenous history in Canada, because after all the shit that's coming out into the limelight, and obviously knowing about it for many, many moons, there's still things I don't know about. And mm. and a good support is a lot of things are coming out saying they're canceling Canada Day. That's you that's being, fair. like speaking up, yeah. Yeah, that's fucking fair. We don't need to celebrate Canada's birthday because, to be honest, Canada is built on stealing and lies and theft. And if you're listening, you don't agree, that's totally fine. You know, you can believe what you want to believe, but that's just where we stand, I think. Mm-hmm. Right? We're just, we just want to be as supportive to non-white folks as possible. So with that being said, I would like to give a big old Thank you to my resources for today's episode. So big old shout out to Iowa Cold Cases website. Uh, case summary credits to Janet Franson, Sandra Kosho, Bernadette Kosho, and Jody Ewing. Find a great website page by user Marty and Harley. www.lcotribe.com. The Justice for Native Women website posted on June 30th, 2017 by Mac. Uh, Native Women's Wilderness website, Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women by Felicia Felicia Bartley and Isleta Pueblo. And finally, the Homeless Hub website, Violence in Aboriginal Communities by Emma D. LaRock on March 1994. I think that was a paper that was uploaded to the Homeless Hub website. So, Christy... Without further ado, how can people hit us up? How can they send us information? How can they say hi? How can they support the show? Hit them with all the information they need. Yeah, here we go. Spitting facts. We are on Apple Podcasts. If you guys listen to podcasts, a uh, free way to consider giving us a little shout out is do some ratings. We would love some stars, preferably five. Just helps us get us out there, get some word about our show. Other places, Spotify, Google, Good Pods, and any other place you listen to uh, platforms of different podcasts. You can support the show by free, following us on TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're just Weird Distractions Podcast. We will pop up, no problem. Looking for more Weird Distractions? Consider joining our two tiers on Patreon. Both tiers get monthly bonus episodes, behind-the-scenes footage, free stickers, and more. Um, Some of our bonus topics have included the case of the Oakland County Child Murders and Ismo Uni and more. Shout out to our current Patreons, Tom and Bailey. Thank you guys so much for your support, as always. Thank you. We love you. And if you want to help the show out more beyond free options, again, we said I talked about Patreon, but you can also do a one-time pledge on Buy Me a Coffee. You can support us by wrapping our merch. We are on Redbubble, again, just searching us. And uh, lastly, we want to hear from you guys. We are trying to do a series of sorts of listener stories. We want to hear your topics of anything weird, anything creamy, any interactions with crazy killers. We want to hear about it. So email exactly. to us at weirddistractionspodcast.outlook.com. 
yeah, we want to hear your encounters. Maybe your house was haunted by a poltergeist. We want to hear about it. Maybe you saw Bigfoot or what you thought was Bigfoot, but was actually your Uncle Kevin. We want to hear about that. We want to hear your weird shit because we are revving up and getting things ready for an August episode, but we need more stories. So just send them to us. <laughs> for the love of God, please. <laughs> please. <laughs> And like I mentioned before, if you have any Indigenous or Native cases that you want us to cover in the future, please email us. If you have any case suggestions, let us know. Um, But if you need a distraction. We got you. Bye. Bye.